Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Meet Janice. Unfortunately, her thing is sneeze attacks every time spring returns. I literally sneezed 40 times in a row once. <laughs> Luckily for Janice, at the Walmart pharmacy, she can get over-the-counter allergy relief for things like sneezing, runny nose, and watery eyes, fast with online pickup or delivery. No more suffering? That's nothing to <laughs> sneeze at. <laughs> I see what you did there. Help survive allergy season with fast online pickup or delivery from Walmart. Welcome to an easier pharmacy. Welcome to your Walmart. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show, and if you want to be on the show, I hope you do. Leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. It, it's your homepage, isn't it? You can also check me out on all the social media, the, the social the kids, the kids with their electric phone machines. Find out about our upcoming guests. And I'm joined once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Oh, greetings, Bill. How are you doing today? I'm fabulous. I'm glad to hear it. I'm uh, I'm okay. You know, it's it's COVID times. It's weird times. I heard about that. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a thing that's going around. You know, and over the past year, like pretty much everyone, you know, I've adjusted a lot of things in my life. One of the things that I've adjusted is I changed the way I eat. I I discovered I have high cholesterol. Just all this time at home, I've kind of ad- adapted and played around with the way I eat. I'm trying to eat less red meat. I'm trying to get a little more vegetarianism into my diet. And, you know, it's a challenge, especially, you know, when I'm road tripping with the family and we're trying to minimize our stops and we're doing fast food. You know, it used to be there were very, very few options, but that's changing. And you know, it's been well, getting Corey, easier to come up with could, vegetarian options. Who could yes. forget the day we enjoyed Impossible Whoppers? Those we had Impossible Whoppers were pretty great. Uh, at Stitcher Studios uh, while we were preparing for a podcast. And it was cool. You know, it tastes like a Whopper. And, you know, it has that same sort of feel, but, you know, without uh, well, the, the meat. animal in it. So without with the animal. that said, animal. Corey, 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 yes. let's, let's get revved up here. Our I guest know. today is none oh, other than the that. CEO and founder of Impossible Foods. For reals, everybody. He's the maker of the famed Impossible Burger. He also helped invent the DNA microarray and co-founded the Public Library of Science. Dr. Pat Brown, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Pat? Of course you may. The Impossible Burgers that I've had really are cool. And, and just want to start the show... You know, this is a call-in show. I'd like to start the show with a voicemail, which I think 
just leads us right into the big fundamental questions. Let's roll that digital recording. Hi, Bill and Corey. Uh, my name is Milo. I'm from Utah, and I have a question about Impossible Foods. I've been a vegan for a little over a year now for mostly ethical reasons. So obviously there's a great ethical advantage of eating an Impossible Burger over a factory-farmed cow burger. But I was also now wondering about the difference in the environmental impact of choosing Impossible Meat over real meat, whether that's in terms of land use, water use, carbon emissions, or anything like that. What's the difference? Thank you so much. Uh, in terms of land use, if you replace a pound of cow-derived ground beef, you spare a land area uh, that's about uh, 270 square feet, which is in the Amazon. The demand for beef is the major driver of deforestation in the Amazon. So for water, you save uh, about 90 gallons of water with substituting a pound of impossible that's about as much as the uh, uh, average American individual uses in household use in a day. Greenhouse gas-wise, you save the equivalent of 92 miles flown in a typical passenger jet. So 92 passenger miles of air travel. So people think of that as a horrendously greenhouse gas intensive activity while well, eating a pound of impossible instead of a pound of beef, buys you uh, 92 miles of air travel. In terms of fertilizer use, pesticide use, we use less than a twelfth what producing the same from a cow uh, entails. So that's on, a, that's on a personal consumption basis. But the reason that I found it Impossible Foods is that you're not going to solve this problem by asking people to change their diets, Okay or asking people to make personal sacrifices in their choices for the sake of the kinds of savings that I'm talking about. We need a solution that can quickly scale globally and does not require asking people to make a sacrifice or to change their behavior or their motivations. So the use of animals as a food technology is by far the most destructive technology in human history. And feel free to debate me on that. No, no, that's cool. This is a very, it's a pretty common claim that when you have all this cattle grazing, confined feed animal feeding operations and all these horrible things and all the water, fresh water, non-salty water you need to raise beef, uh, this is a very common thing. First of all, it takes tremendous resources. Then, oh, the methane that's produced by beef production especially, I guess beef and pork production especially, this is a very common environmental criticism, but you're touching on something that I think is really important. And this idea for me goes back to Rick Smalley. He says the key to the future is not to do less or tell people to do less. The key to the future is to do more with less. Is that what you're driving at at Impossible Meats? Um, I think that's a, that's a reasonably good parallel, yes. I mean, you're not going to solve the problem if you're waiting for governments or individuals to make hard choices. But fortunately, the problem... Uh, isn't really primarily the choices people make. It's that we're using a ridiculous technology to produce these foods. You know, cows are a terrible technology for meat production. They didn't evolve to be delicious. People found them delicious, but they were never optimized for deliciousness. They certainly weren't optimized for uh, uh, nutritional uh, value. They're a good source of protein and iron, but very problematic otherwise. And obviously, from an environmental standpoint, they're a catastrophe. The land footprint 
of animal agriculture comprises 45% of the ice-free surface of Earth. Most of that is, is, is for cows, but that's the total animal agriculture. Um, 45%? 45%. Uh, 45% of arable lands? That you mean? No, 45% of the entire ice-free land surface of Earth. It's an area bigger than North America, South America, Europe, and Australia combined. That has huge consequences. As a source of greenhouse gases, animal agriculture is responsible for more emissions than the entire transportation sector. I think more or less that's pretty well socialized now and people are aware of it. But people are not aware is the opportunity cost of, uh, in terms of um, climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. And the opportunity cost is the opportunity by simply replacing animals as a food technology to buy ourselves a 40-year a forty-year delay in the progression of atmospheric greenhouse gases. In other words, we can effectively turn back the clock by 40 years. Compare that with energy production, with uh, electricity production from fossil fuel plants, for example. Well, from a pure volume standpoint, fossil fuel emissions from uh, uh, energy production uh, exceed the greenhouse gas emissions footprint of animal agriculture. But I want to talk about the opportunity cost, okay? Because there's something magical about stopping animal agriculture that if you stop fossil fuel emissions, first of all, that's not going to happen for quite some time because there's a lot of inertia in that system. But let's say we, we do do it. The carbon dioxide, the only way you can pull the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere is photosynthesis, okay? It's, it's an extremely stable gas in the atmosphere. Methane, on the other hand, has a half-life of nine years. That creates a huge opportunity because about half the anthropogenic methane in the atmosphere today comes from livestock. An anthropogenic uh, human created. Yes, yeah. And molecule for molecule, methane is a much more intense greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Sunlight makes the methane, the carbon with four hydrogens, break apart into uh, subordinate molecules. Yes, into ultimately CO2. But it's, uh, and that process happens spontaneously with a half-life of nine years. That is a huge opportunity because what it means is if, if I could snap my fingers and switch off animal agriculture in this moment, in the nine years after you shut off livestock methane emissions, you nullify over that nine-year period more than five years five of those nine years worth of ongoing greenhouse gas emissions. Reasonable and amazing. Yeah. And over the course of of the next 20 years, say, you nullify a total of more than eight years of ongoing greenhouse gas emissions at current rates. That's not the whole magic. The other half is that there have been some very good calculations of the total amount of what you could sort of say missing biomass on that 45% of Earth's land surface that's used for animal ag. Because if it's being grazed, the amount of perennial biomass on the land is pretty much guaranteed less than the pre-agricultural amounts. If you let it just grow wild. If you let the prairie be a prairie, yes. you'd have a lot more plant matter. Or you let the Amazon matter. be a tropical forest, which is... Yeah, uh, you'd uh, have a lot more plant matter and a lot more photosynthesis taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. All cool, great. It's win, 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 win is what you're trying to say here. If you, if you kick the cows off that 45% of Earth's land surface, 
what happens is the recovery of biomass on that land will pull out of the atmosphere between 16 and 18 years worth of total greenhouse gas emissions at the current rate. If we stop grazing it all day, stop mowing the lawn on 45% of the earth, the lawn would grow back and we'd take CO2 out of the air. Yes. So I'm loving it. The Bring best it on. carbon capture technology optimized over 3 billion years of evolution is <laughs> photosynthesis, okay? Yeah. I say all the time, a tree is a column of carbon. It is really, everybody, it's really an amazing thing. When you look at a tree, you look at any plant, the material that makes the solid plant, the wood, doesn't come up through the roots. It's taken right out of the air. It's right. magical. It's, it's, it's just air. It's air and water. A tree is made of air and water. It's just, it's a hard, it's really astonishing. So, Pat, you saw this problem. You're uh, a geneticist. Is that right? Is that your background? Well, it's complicated. I mean, I would say I'm a scientist. I happen to, most of my career, be working uh, in molecular biology, cell biology, genetics, genomics, and so forth. So, yeah, so what was this awakening moment like? You were working on DNA microarrays. You'd done a lot of research broadly around different DNA techniques and about public access to science. This is a kind of a big leap. What was that moment that you thought, okay, I need to jump in and do something? Well, it wasn't like a light bulb moment exactly, but... Um, well, I was a professor in the medical school at Stanford. I'd been a professor there for 25 years. Uh, I thought it was absolutely my dream job. My professional responsibility was to follow my curiosity wherever it led and, and discover and invent things. So I feel like, you know, I, I think you can understand, like, if, if they weren't paying me to do that, I'd be paying them for the opportunity to do it. So it was like the best <laughs> job in the world. I, I had a sabbatical. I basically wanted to use it uh, to... Um, identify the most important global problem that I could contribute to solving. And um, I quickly realized that the problem that needed to be solved was the catastrophic impact of the use of animals as a food technology, a catastrophic collapse in global biodiversity. And I, and I haven't even talked about water usage and, and water pollution. And they're, they're, the list is oh, so yeah, the, long. Yeah, far, and, farm runoff is its own huge issue. Yes, we are in the very late stages of a catastrophic meltdown in global biodiversity. In the past 50 years, the total number of wild mammals, wild birds, wild reptiles, wild amphibians, wild fish is less than a third what it was 50 years ago. Only okay? 50 years ago. Yeah. When I was a kid, there were three yeah. times as many wild animals, wild mammals, wild birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish living on Earth as there are today. And it's almost entirely due to the impact of using animals as a food technology. This is the problem. How did you solve it? What is this thing? Right, especially this idea, as you said, you came at this from the premise that you have to create demand. You have to create something people want, which is a, a pretty high bar to set. How did you go after that? And how did you create this thing? Well, it wasn't just to create something people want. The mission of our company is to completely replace animals with food technology by 2035, okay? We have to be successful as a business to do this, but our definition of success is the collapse of the incumbent industry. And that means it's not just about making a product people want, it's making a product people that, that, that people specifically choose at the expense of an animal-derived product, okay? So that meant that our target specification was to make something that someone who loves a burger would choose over the cow version of it. 
And as a scientist, I felt like, well, okay, that's a hard problem, but it's a, absolutely a solvable problem. It's a lot easier to understand what makes meat work in molecular terms than understanding what makes even the simplest cell work in molecular terms. Really? Why is that? Meat's easier than cells? Vastly easier. And just think of it. The, the dimensionality of the problem of meat is vastly lower because there are a finite number of properties of meat that a consumer can uh, sense. Think about muscle tissue. What does muscle tissue have to do? It has to do a crazy amount of stuff. It has to burn calories and produce usable chemical energy. It has to maintain a membrane potential. It has to do this incredibly kind of magical transformation of chemical energy into into motion. In in meat, its function is much simpler. It has to unfold at a particular temperature and make a gel that has the right mechanical properties to be perceived as, you know, cooked meat, okay? I mean, people have been making veggie burgers for many, many years. And if this was such an easy, straightforward problem, why did nobody else crack it? Nobody was trying, basically. The food industry is pretty much a wasteland when it comes to innovation, okay? An innovative product is a new flavor of Cheetos. One of the first things we had to do was to understand in molecular terms what makes meat taste like meat. Why does meat, as a category, you can instantly recognize, I give you some chunk of food, and you'll know, doesn't doesn't matter what animal it comes from, you'll know it's meat, right? You can you'll smell know. it. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a distinctive and across the whole spectrum of meat, kind of recognizable flavor and aroma. They, they don't all taste and smell the same, but they all taste and smell like meat. Why is it? No plant does. You would think that... That would be a question that someone in the food world would have wanted to answer at some point in history. Well, when I started the company, we started working on trying to answer that question. And it turned out the answer was, I mean, to be frank, pretty easy to discover. And the answer is it's heme. H-E-M-E. H-E-M-E. So heme is a small molecule. It's one of the most ubiquitous biomolecules on Earth. Every cell needs it because it's part of the energy-generating machinery. Even a plant cell needs heme. Even a plant cell needs. In fact, plant cells have hundreds of heme proteins, but animals, because they move around and are more metabolically active than plants, burn more oxygen. They use more energy and burn more oxygen. So the functions of heme, there are many different functions of heme. It's involved in the system by which your mitochondria, the little energy organs, powerhouse of the cell, uh, yep. um, burn sugar and fats to, to make energy. Um, in your blood, heme is the molecule that carries oxygen from your lungs to your tissues. In your muscle, there's a different heme protein, myoglobin, that sort of stores oxygen. An interesting geeky t- fact is that sperm whales in sperm whale muscle, about 6% of the mass of sperm whale muscle is myoglobin, this heme protein. The other thing about heme is that it's the business end of uh, some of the critical enzymes in your body. So the enzymes in your liver that metabolize caffeine or other uh, compounds use heme as the catalytic element. And the enzymes that are involved in synthesizing all the steroid hormones, uh, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol, So it's a catalyst, it's an oxygen carrier, 
and it's involved in uh, electron transport and stuff like that. Ubiquitous. It's it's found everywhere in life, but in must in animals, they have you know hundred to a thousand times higher concentration of heme than plants, and that's the difference. So the bloody taste of meat comes from heme. It creates the taste by catalyzing a chemical reaction in your mouth that oxidizes an abundant unsaturated fat in your saliva, linoleic acid. And sorry, to sorry to interrupt. And that's not specifically the heme and hemoglobin. It's the it's the heme itself that heme gives itself. you that. Heme, that is, meat. heme is heme is heme is heme. And, and everybody, uh, okay. if you could see him on this electronic interaction, he's holding his fingers to his lips like like a gourmet, describing <laughs> describing the heme experience as you eat conventional meat. Stick around for more science rules after this. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Science Rules is back. So you found a way to get more heme in a plant than a plant would normally have. Is that accurate? Not not exactly, no. but approximately no. accurate. So, <laughs> so first thing I no, did, no is an acceptable answer on this show. <laughs> when I founded the company, I had a brilliant idea that legumes, you know, these nitrogen-fixing plants like... Peanuts. Like beans beans. and peanuts and stuff like that. The nitrogen-fixing structure in the plant is called a root nodule. And the root nodules are one of the only non-animal tissues that have a high concentration of heme. They have a heme protein called leg hemoglobin. Leg hemoglobin? Yeah. Legumes I was raised with, that's peanuts, soy, a flower that puts nitrogen back in the soil. Yeah. Legume. So I thought, okay, here's the brilliant idea. I did a calculation. The U.S. soybean crop in the root nodules contains as much heme as all the meat consumed in the U.S., roughly speaking. So I thought, okay, perfect. No one's harvesting the root nodules. We'll just harvest the root nodules and isolate the heme from that. And that's how we'll get heme for our plant-based meats. And we actually spent, when I started the company, we probably spent half of our person hours and half of the money that we raised as a startup pursuing the idea that we would isolate uh, the hemoglobin from root nodules for our products. And like most of my brilliant ideas, it proved to be wrong. Why didn't it work? One thing is, it turns out the root nodules, when you try to dig them up, you get a lot of dirt. And then you have the challenge of having to separate the root nodules from the dirt. And 
When you're digging up the soil, you're also releasing carbon dioxide that's stored in the soil and increasing erosion and stuff like that. So eventually I just came around to, this was a lame idea. It was my lame idea, so I have no one else to blame. (laughs) Well, it was logical, but I appreciate your self-deprecation. Okay, so now what do we do? So one of our scientists said, okay, now that's not going to work, okay? So we're going to have to just produce it um, by using an engineered either plant or microbe, and microbes are, are faster to engineer. We isolate genes for the heme proteins from bacteria that live in deep sea vents. There's one called Hell's Gate, from paramecium, from, you know, barley. So you're saying that any of these sources would produce a heme molecule that from a sensory standpoint, for the consumer at the end point, it would be the same thing. It would give you that same meat sensation. Not exactly. That was actually a, a, a factor. Okay. We didn't know in advance which would be the best. Let me just say something. We took 36 different uh, heme proteins, including bovine myoglobin, including, you know, paramecium, trypanosomes, bacteria, various plants. And then we evaluated which one is the best for food. Okay. Because, you know, unlike the cow that didn't do this experiment, we could ask that question. Turns out bovine myoglobin was terrible. Did you do this with a focus group or, you know, are you doing, are you tasting it yourself? How did you determine what's best? Well, first order business is we can evaluate the solubility, okay? Um, because it has to be soluble at, a, at the right pH. It has to be soluble in this system. So some of them are, you know. You, you have to, when you get it in your mouth, it has to dissolve. Yes, it has to be. Or be susceptible to, be, to being uh, broken uh, down. Uh, dissolve in a water environment and so forth. Um, because basically in the food, it's mostly made of water and, and it needs to be dispersed. So there's that. Then the other thing is that, you know, you, when you take meat and you let it sit around, uh, it loses its red color and becomes kind of gray, right? Well, that's because the heme yeah. iron oxidizes, okay? Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not a good thing. So it turns out bovine myoglobin oxidizes very fast compared to a number of other heme proteins. So ultimately, we picked the one that performed best. And just by coincidence, it turned out to be soy-like hemoglobin, which was the one that we started out, you know, trying to isolate from soybeans. But there were some others that were really cool. One of them was a heme protein from a bacteria that was a vivid kind of fuchsia purple color. It was unbelievable. It was beautiful. Would not have sold well as meat, but, but it, was, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a lot of fun to see in the lab. One of the things, everybody, that I think about all the time, the future of food, there, there may be a time where we just come up with a whole new kind of food and people like it. Yes. And if it's purple, they'll associate with people like red cabbage for Corona. So hang on. What did you do? You got this protein and you found you could produce it or rather you could isolate it in soybean nodules. <laughs> But then you took it up another step somehow. You genetically modified the soybean? What did we yeah. do? No, we didn't. Well, that, that's, that's another approach is to genetically modify soybean so that this protein is expressed in, say, the bean rather than the root. But we, just, we genetically modified uh, yeast. The same thing I used to make bread. And yeah. as importantly, or beer. beer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And the, the particular yeast we use is actually a close cousin of one of the uh, yeasts that's commonly used in Belgian beers. So we had to actually jack up the um, yeast cell's ability to synthesize the heme molecule. Pretty complicated genetic engineering task. But anyway, our team is so great, they broke every record for, you know, kind of like 
yeast production of a protein. So what do you do? You have vats of yeast growing with the heme held by heme holding proteins? Yeah, what does it actually look like as a manufacturing process? Okay. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Have you ever been to a brewery? I have. I'll, I'll confess. Okay. Well, there are these gigantic stainless steel cylindrical tanks like you have in a brewery. They contain growth media for the yeast. The yeast go in there and they grow like mad to very high concentrations. And what you have is a bright, vivid red suspension of these yeast that we then have to uh, effectively bust open the yeast cells and, and isolate the heme protein from. So how do we bust open a yeast cell? Or you'd have to kill us. <laughs> Actually, that's, these are, it's a very interesting question. It's harder than you might think. Because like most living things, they were designed to stay alive. And part of that involved trying not to be easy to break. But anyway, there's uh, various ways you can do that. You can can put them through a nozzle so they experience very high pressure followed by very rapid decompression that sort of explodes them. I mean, physically break them apart with a garden hose, uh, a sophisticated garden hose. Uh, That's one way. How do you guys do it? How do you produce this finished product? Okay, so there's other things that are involved. So the flavor chemistry is one thing. Heme is the catalyst. But the precursors for, for the hundreds of aroma molecules that are produced when you cook meat are amino acids, sugars, fatty acids, vitamins, things that are pretty much found in every living cell. In fact, you can take vegetable broth um, which is, you know, mainly a solution of those things, amino acids, vitamins, sugars, things like that, um, throw in heme, and now it tastes like beef broth, okay? But the precise composition of those, you know, the, the amounts and the proportions of those biomolecules determine the exact flavor profile. So there's fine This was Corey's there. question. Did, did you use focus groups to determine the combination of biomolecules? Yes, you could say that, yeah. Yeah, we do a lot of sensory testing using humans as our assay system. I mean, the thing is that there's a lot of things that you can measure. You can use mass spectroscopy to enumerate all the molecules in there. You can use all kinds of things that measure mechanical properties to evaluate the texture. But the ultimate assay is, do people like it? Right. I mean, were were you your own focus group? Did you sort of sample and test as you went along? Like, hmm, how does this one taste? I'm not the target consumer because I actually haven't eaten meat from animals in 50 years. So, but fortunately, we have a lot of people who are much more savvy about meat flavor. And then we also go out and just collect random sets of consumers in the wild, you could say, and just collect sort of statistical data on how much they like it compared to the coverage and what's, you know, stuff like that. So speaking of consumers in the wild... This thing is, at some level, a genetically modified organism. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. So here we have a voicemail from uh, Ryan, and I think he's going to get to an important question. Let's roll that digital recording. Hello, Team Science. Ryan here. I'm really interested in the impossible foods. I love the burger, but now I live in Sweden, and we can't get it over here. Uh, apparently because of the genetically modified factor. But Swedes do believe in sustainability, and we also eat way too much meat. So what do you think? Is there a way to get around this? Uh, Thanks a lot. Bye. GMO, you know, as we say, 
humans have been farming for 10,000 years, essentially genetically modifying crops for centuries. Sure. So now we just do it in a more sophisticated way. That's our take on it here at Science Rules. Yeah. So take it, Pat. Yeah. Well, I, I, com- I completely agree with that. And it's just we now have ways of doing it that I would say in many ways are much, they're much more precise and deliberate, much less likely to have unintended consequences because you're not just bashing you know, the genome and, and hoping for luck. But as you say, the world is, is, is catching up and coming around to more rational view of this um, slowly, but but there are still some regulations that discriminate against genetic engineering. In terms of Europe, actually, it, there's no there's no regulation that blocks genetically engineered organisms. In fact, in Europe, like most of the world, a large fraction of the cheese is produced using rennet that used to come from the linings of baby animals is now produced by genetically engineered yeast. For most of the you know most of the cheese in the world, um, and the, and there's a lot of uh, genetically engineered proteins used in the food system in Europe. We're going through that regulatory process. It's a bureaucratic process. It takes time. Um, the science is straightforward. Bureaucracy is slow. But so you're working the problem in Sweden yeah, to re- absolutely. answer Ryan's and, and, question. And there's no doubt about the outcome because you know the science is clear. We had to do the same thing in the U.S. We had to do the same thing in Canada. So. How long do you think it'll take for Ryan in Sweden? Well, one of the hardest things to predict is the pace of bureaucratic decision-making. Well, but you, the goal, and it's quite cool, is 15 years, get rid of red meat, get rid of a, a conventional animal meat production, I mean. That is what I mean. So would it be five years in Sweden, 15 years in no, Sweden, I think 15 I, months I mean, in Sweden? Maybe another year and a half. Oh, right. That's could coming be, right could up. Could be sooner. There you go, Ryan. Stand by. Year and a half, you'll be able to get yeah, we, impossible. Yeah, we're, we're, we're looking out for you, for sure, Ryan. All right. Now, so another thing that fascinates me, now you have impossible pork instead of impossible beef. What did you do? Or you'd have to kill us if you told us. No, 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 no. You know, we're pretty transparent about how we do this stuff, um, except for maybe some just nitpicking details. But the kind of the fundamental flavor chemistry of meat is pretty highly conserved across all the different animals that we make meat from. It mostly comes from reactions catalyzed by heme that take simple biomolecules that aren't just found in animals, but in plants and every organism, amino acids, sugars, vitamins, and uh, converts them into this explosion of volatile compounds that you smell and taste as, as meat. Give you this the, wonderful taste, yeah. The precise, the differences come from the fine-tuning of that composition, the relative proportions of those precursors, amino acids, sugars, fats, the concentration of heme matters. Basically, pork has a lower concentration of heme, somewhat different fatty acid profile in the fat. And, and so you guys have figured that out. Yeah, yeah. All right, so... Here's another question. I have a, a lot of vegan friends, and they have to supplement somehow vitamin B12. They got to get an injection. They got to take a daily supplement that is somehow dairy-based, or it has a derivative from some animal <laughs> upstream there. So is B12 in uh, Impossible Meat? Yes, yes. So and actually, you guys put it there. You just squirted it in there. This is the thing about not using a cow we can actually deliberately decide what goes into it. 
okay? And we can optimize for nutritional value. We can optimize the micronutrients as well as the flavor and all of those things. So of course, because consumers regard meat as a valuable source of B12, we want to make sure that if they buy our product, they're not getting shortchanged on that. Now, there are lots of organisms that produce B12. It's not just animal sources, actually. Um, most of the B12 that's produced, like for baby formula, for you know various kinds of things, is actually produced by fermentation uh, using bacteria that naturally synthesize it. E. coli can synthesize B12 from, from just whatever simple stuff you feed it. Science Rules will be right back. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. You're listening to Science Rules. So you've found a way to make beef tasting product impossible meat. You found a way to make pork tasting impossible meat. What about the texture? You know, part of the reason people like bacon is the, the mouthfeel, yeah. as the foodies call it. Of course. Have you figured out the texture problem? So what I would say is um, when we were starting out, we had to pick our first product and the flavor profile of that product. And that we chose was, you know, ground beef. Okay. Well, when you're trying to navigate to that little ground beef space, sometimes you take a wrong turn and you get bacon or liver or turkey <laughs> or you know, or something, you know, indescribable. I would almost say we've accidentally made bacon flavor along the way, but you're talking about the texture, which is, which is uh, yeah, right. uh, another thing. And one of the things that we're working uh, uh, very hard now on is uh, making whole cuts like steak and, um, yeah, how are you going to do oh, that? Yeah, how do you uh, do that? The uh, hanger our, steak. Our, the, our producer the tri- has been asking over and over again, how do I get an, an impossible hanger steak? Well, <laughs> impossible I, tri-tip. I, you know, that's something I might have one of our legal team rush into the room and grab me by the throat if I say too much about it. But I will say um, highly scalable technology for doing it. We're just in the early stages of optimizing it, but I've tasted prototypes and and both in terms of how they cook and look and texture and stuff like that, that look just absolutely mind-boggling. And Well, it seems to me intuitively, you know, I'm not a botanist, mechanical engineer, but I think about plants uh, and meat. Meat has fibers. Yes. Muscles have fibers. Yes. So intuitively, it seems like you could find or or hybridize a plant that would have fibers that would remind you of water-soaked meat fibers. You might be able to do that, and that's a very interesting idea. The way we're doing it, though, is, you know, we start with some precursors that that aren't intrinsically fibrous, but you can make, you can give them this kind of anisotropic. Not the same all the way through tropic. Yeah, yeah Non-isentropic, yeah. Like, for example... You know, a fiber, if you pull it sidewise, 
might pull apart very easily. And if you pull it lengthwise, it's strong. You, pulling, pulling a rope sideways is different than pulling it longitudinally. Yeah, yeah. But you can make anisotropic materials out of proteins. It's not trivial to do. I mean, you give it a grain. So the upshot is you have managed to replicate this texture, this kind of directional strength that makes a steak taste. Uh, and I shouldn't say me. I, I, some of the brilliant people that, that work with me have done it and I have managed to taste it. Uh, so we got beef. Pork, you said, oh, it could come out like turkey, could come out like chicken. What's next on the grill? What's the next? What's the next challenge? Uh, impossible beef, impossible pork, impossible blank. What are you working well, on next? That's a, it's a complicated question to answer. We're working on all those things, also including fish, also including milk and cheese and other things. And, and I'll just say they're all individually very interesting, complicated problems but a lot of the fundamental know-how to solve all of them is sort of the same stuff. It's, it's, they're all things whose, whose salient properties in terms of deliciousness are an emergent property of the, well, the molecules that make them up and particularly the proteins and fats. And if you focus a lot on understanding how those things give rise to macroscopic properties and, and flavor chemistry and so forth, there's a real synergy there. Our goal is to get to the, without going into the particular timing of things, we absolutely intend within the next few years to have beef, pork, lamb, fish in various formulations, including whole cuts, as well as, well, uh, fish for sure. And fish is a very important one, and shrimp, because I mentioned the biodiversity collapse, okay? The biodiversity in the ocean is very far advanced in collapsing, and uh, it's almost entirely due to overfishing. So it's a huge priority for us, given our environmental mission, to make plant-based fish that can compete successfully in the market against the, and shrimp against the animal products. Again, I think from a technical standpoint, from a scientific standpoint, it's entirely doable. Once you start picking apart the food system, and this is by far the most destructive part of the food system and worst performing, you realize that there's so many ways we can improve, in, in, including overall robustness of the system, food security, less dependence on a handful of crops, stuff like that. So there's a bunch of other stuff that we're working on that's more long-term projects. Which You alluded earlier to you were sometimes getting flavors that didn't really align with any existing yes. meat. Uh, could you invent totally new kinds oh, of meat? Yes. Are, there, are, there, are there great flavors out there that no human has ever experienced? It's, it's one of our projects that's kind of on the books that is not on the pipeline, you could say, but it's, it's I'm sure, completely doable, is sort of uber meats. The meats that people are familiar with are basically an accident of what species could be domesticated. And um, when you think about the huge space Sort of in terms of ah uh, the, vir the of, virtual meat space. I can think about the virtual yes, that's food space. About the yeah. Parameter space. There's a there's a huge space of possibilities, of which the things that are presently on the market are just a few little you know places in that space. And there's no reason to think that we lucked out and the animals that humans domesticate five thousand years ago or whatever, uh, you know, represent the most delicious things in that space of possibilities. 
And at some point, you could engineer something that's just that's just so delicious. You just want to eat it. It's it's just like perfectly delicious, amazo uber meat. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's that's quite a vision, and it's so logical. I got to say, Pat, it's just one thing leads to another when you think about it. But you might say, given that, why are we right now producing products that are instantly recognizable? as uh, plant-based versions of familiar meats? And the answer is, our mission is not to invent amazing new foods. It's to collapse the incumbent industry by out-competing them in the market. And so the way that you undermine the market for ground beef from a cow is by having a product that someone who is looking for ground beef will choose instead of the cow version. And yeah. if we instead had a brontosaurus burger there or something like that, uh, it wouldn't necessarily be as effective in the one-for-one -one competition that that we're going at. The other thing, if you uh, just in the bigger picture, you know, people talk about the future of employment, the future of our workforce. The same people that raise beef have the skills. Agricultural professionals, aka farmers, ranchers, have the skills to raise this stuff, right? To produce, to use sunlight, to make plants, to make things that we're gonna eat. Yes, so you, you touched on a very interesting, very complicated question, but, but one thing I wanna say is that if we replace animals in the food system, we don't need more plants, we need fewer crops, okay? This year's soybean crop, which is grown on 0.8% of Earth's land area, as opposed to 45%, contains 50% more human-usable protein than all the meat produced globally, okay? Very substantial portion of the crops that are currently grown are used to feed animals, and they're converted into meat with horrific inefficiency. We can convert those protein and those crops with one-to-one -one efficiency into meat. So you need fewer crops. You need no animal husbandry. So actually, the labor requirements are much lower. So you can say, what's going to happen to the ranchers and farmers? And I don't know, but I have a suggestion. If there's no money to be made anymore by cows, okay, we can now hire those people who are familiar with managing the land to help with the recovery of yes. ecosystems that were effectively wiped out for the sake of animal agriculture. And that I think is a, an entirely reasonable and noble and... We'll cross that bridge is what it comes down to. You know, I think all the time about my, my grandfather rode a horse, World War I, and there was tremendous infrastructure for horse support. Yes. Mews, stables, and so on. Well, as horses got phased out in a matter of just two decades, uh, those people found employment doing other stuff. What's he going to do? Of course. It's a huge opportunity. Corey, Corey, Bill, wait a second. Bill, I hear a sound. You know, normally I would think maybe that's the, the, the thunderous hooves of a, a herd of cattle, but clearly not on this episode. So that must be thunder from the lightning round. Dr. Brown, here we go. What type of meat has been the toughest for your R&D department to mimic? Is there a tough one? Bacon will be an interesting challenge because so much of it, of its behavior is very high, it's adipose tissue that has- Mixed a, in with strips of, of muscle protein. Yes, but, but, but the adipose tissue itself has elasticity and tensile strength and, and so forth. 
So that I think is going to be an interesting challenge. Completely doable, but um, doable, but not yet. Cool. Not yet. What is the most? Hey, here's here's the question. What is the most misunderstood thing about Impossible Foods? Oh, there's so many misunderstood things about it. A lot of people think that we're growing uh, meat from cell animal cells. No, very few people understand why we're here. We are not interested in making veggie burgers. We're not interested in creating cool foods for vegans. We exist entirely to improve the lives of current meat consumers. We're, we're completely devoted to creating foods that people think, oh, we don't like meat eaters. No, we love meat eaters. Our job is to serve them better. And that's how we're going to save the planet. Thank you, Pat Brown, for joining us today to talk about impossible foods and the remarkable statistics associated with the food systems. Our guest today has been Dr. Pat Brown. He is the CEO and founder of Impossible Foods. And remember, when it comes to making seemingly impossible things possible, science rules. If you like science rules, and I hope you do, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out and helps other people learn about the show, helps us find out what you want to hear about. So thank you. Be sure to look at all my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on everything. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785, just as Ryan and Milo did. Or submit a question at askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and the very same Corey S. Powell. My pleasure. Frank Olson mixed this episode. Casey Alford composed our original theme. Josephine Margaron is our executive producer. And at Stitcher Science Rules. Pat, thank you so much. Carry on. Let's get out there and change the world. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Stitcher. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.